Are you guys ever surprised by grace in your life? Yeah, I'm surprised by grace a lot. I need to be forgiven a lot in my life. Anybody else, or am I just like a particular bad brand of sinner? Like, I need to be forgiven a lot. And nobody has had to forgive me and my life more than my lovely wife, Jennifer, who's hanging out over here today. Just yesterday, on the drive out, it's like, you know, I'm thinking, we get in the truck, we're, we're coming up from Orange County, and we're excited to come to Temecula and hang out with you guys and everything. And then I hit uh, the beauty of gridlock traffic on the 91, and, uh, you know, things start to shift in my soul, in my mind a little bit. And, uh, you know, we're in our F-150 that somehow we dragged with us down here from Utah that, if you don't know, it has no AC. And, you know, thank God it was not as bad as it has been uh, during some days recently. But I'm hot. The, the, the traffic's bad. We get out here. We can't figure out what we're going to have for dinner because we're a normal married couple that can never figure that out, you know. And, uh, and so what happens to dad? I go for from, you know, nice daddy, good husband to this like critical, whiny, curmudgeon jerk of a guy, you know, and, and I'm just whining about everything, you know, forget that I'm out here to hang out with other Christians and share about Jesus, I'm just going to whine about everything, you know, and so as is typically the case, finally at one point the Holy Spirit breaks through the chorus of whiny voices in my head and it's like, you know, you're kind of being mean to your wife and kids, don't you think? Maybe you need to, like, repent of your sin and confess and, and ask their forgiveness. And, of course, you know, as we should always, I'm like, well, God, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe you have a, a little bit of knowledge I don't have here. And so I did. You know, I confessed to my wife and my kids, and I asked my, uh, my five-year-old daughter and our two-year-old son if they would forgive Daddy for his crimes, you know, which, which were legitimate. And, uh, and what happens? You know, my wife forgave me. And she's had to forgive me beyond 70 times 7. And my kids have had to forgive me beyond 70 times 7 in my life. But every time, and, and I'm being honest, it, it shocks me a little bit. I'm like, why do you keep doing this? Why don't you just like kick me to the curb and be done with it? And truthfully, you guys, I know that I, I think in my relationship with God in similar ways. And I would assume I'm not alone with that. With, we believe that we're saved by what? Grace, right, which is unmerited favor. We're forgiven by grace. We're secure in our relationship with God by grace. But I think, truthfully, sometimes, even though we know that in our minds, if only emotionally, we can kind of doubt that. Sometimes we doubt that Jesus is really going to stick it out with us through thick and thin on our darkest days, right? This is particularly true when we're dealing with ongoing temptation and failure. We wonder. Is he really, 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 really going to hold on to us just like he says he will in spite of our performance? We wonder about that. And if you guys don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this. God's grace is far more freeing and inspiring than we dare to believe. I really believe that. Like we think we know the depths of God's grace sometimes. And I just think we're going to spend all of eternity getting more convinced and reconvinced and having a deeper experience and understanding of how great God's grace for our lives really is. God's grace is far more freeing and inspiring than we dare to believe. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about for a little bit today. And as we do that, I wanted to start by just considering uh, the profile of a godly man or woman. The profile of a godly man or woman. And to do that, I wanted to think about a couple guys that we have in our Bible. And I want you guys to tell me, who do you think fits the profile of a godly man or woman, okay? You ready? You guys awake? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, we have a guy who's a thief, an adulterer, a murderer, a liar, and a traitor to his people. 
How many of you think, like, that's what I think of when I think about the resume of a godly person? Anybody? Anyone Anyone daring? Come on, don't be shy. Yeah, nobody thinks that, right? If somebody asked you, what's a godly person look like? You'd be, oh, you know, they commit adultery, they, they murder, they lie a lot. That's godly. Okay, so on the other side, we have somebody else in the Bible. Actually, it's a married couple. And this couple, you know, they, they sold their estate down on Newport Beach overlooking the water, and they took a huge uh, portion of the profits, and they donated it to their church to fund missionaries and to take care of needy Christians. Does that sound like a godly person? Which one would we pick, A or B? Who says A? Who says A because they know the trick, right? <laughs> who says B? Like Everybody would, would say that, right? But But... Who does God say gets the award for godly man or woman? The first one, right? A. And who is it? It's David. Somebody just said it. It's David. That's our King David, the guy that we revere, the guy that we write books about. We're like, oh, we want to be like men like David. You know, yeah, he's a murderer, a thief, a liar, and a traitor to his people. The other one was who? Ananias and Sapphira. It's okay. You can talk back a little bit. Like, I'm, I'm a little Baptisty that way. So anyway, yeah, it's Ananias and Sapphira. But biblically, Ananias and Sapphira drop dead after the situation in Acts 5. They get the chop, and we shouldn't feel too bad for them because obviously they had unrepentant hearts and God's fair and all of that stuff. But David, he gets this banner over his life that says that's a man after God's own heart. And I think partly because God knew we would have a hard time receiving and truly being convinced of that, he doesn't put it in just one place in the Bible, he puts it in two. He said that in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, and he said it in Acts chapter 13, 22. And I don't know about you guys, but when I read that and I consider that David, like he's a real dude. Do you guys know that? That's not just like a Bible story with Bathsheba and the Philistines and all that. He was a real flesh and blood man that God saw all that junk happen in his life, and he still tells us he gets to be considered a man after God's own heart. And when I read that, sometimes just being totally honest with you, even though I'm a pastor, I'm like, is God confused? Like, what? Did you miss something? I know you're omniscient and everything, but how does this work? In fact, um, in between pastoring the church that I was pastoring in Utah and coming down here to be part of Calvary Costa Mesa, I was working a job on an Air Force base, Hill Air Force Base. So, you know, God bless you veterans. I like you. Uh, But I was working at Hill Air Force Base as a production materials technician. And it was as interesting as that sounds. But uh, one day in the the shop, we're hanging out. And one of those guys, funny enough, his name was David. You know, we're talking about spiritual things. And he's like, you know what I just don't get? That guy David was a scumbag. He committed adultery. He killed people. And he gets to be called a man after God's own heart. I just, what's up with that? What kind of a God would would allow that to happen? And because I'm like not smart and not clever and not quick on the draw in conversations like this, I know it was just the grace of the Holy Spirit. He just put on my mind and I just said to David, I was like, you know what, David, you shouldn't see that as an indictment on God. You should see that as hope for yourself. You should see it as hope for yourself. And that's the truth uh, for all of us, isn't it, you guys? The fact that a guy like David could be considered a man after God's own heart, that's not an indictment on God. That's hope for me. That's hope for you. That tells me that the gospel is real, that because Jesus died for our sins and rose for our life, that it's really true that anyone who trusts in him can have their guilt and their debt totally cleared, cleansed from their life from that day and forevermore that they trust in him. Isn't that great, you guys? 
That's the gospel. And so that's, that's hope for us, and it's hope for us because all men fall. Isn't that true? All people sin. Everybody's messing up. If you're like wondering if you're the only one, you're not. Like, just look around. There's a few hundred others of you that are in this room. The Bible tells us that no sin has overtaken us except which is common to men. And he's talking about Christians, so even Christians sin. How many of you guys were like me and like you became a Christian and you're like, well, it's, clearly it's all going to be kind of like downhill from here, just smooth sailing. And then like five minutes went by and you're like, oh, <laughs> I still want to choke that guy for cutting me off in traffic. Like, what happened? We sin. Even Christians sin. And we don't just sin a little bit. Sometimes we sin big, don't we? You know, sometimes we can get down on Catholics in, in evangelicalism because of like the whole saint thing. You're like, well, how do you guys believe that? Like there's these super holy people that because they were just awesome and more faithful than the rest of us, they get to be saints. And yet we have our own kinds of saints in evangelicalism, don't we? We have these people that we lift up and revere. Well, you know why God used them? It's because they were just in a whole other class unto themselves of holy, disciplined, anointed men and women of God. And so, you know, of course God used them. That's not true. There's no such thing as great men and women of God who were so faithful that God just had to use them. Anyone who's used by God in any degree, big or small, you know why he does it? Grace. That's it. And again, that's hope for us. And that's Jesus. Like, don't take my word for it. Some of you are like getting mad at me because you have like pastors and teachers and people that you're like, well, what about so-and-so? Yeah, just a sinner used by grace. And this is Jesus's theology about everyone in general, but also church leaders specifically. You guys remember some people came to him one time and are like, oh, good teacher, blah, blah, blah. That's a loose translation. I'm sorry. But... uh Jesus' response was, "What? why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. And Jesus was either saying one of two things, that he wasn't God or that he, wasn't, or that he is God or that he wasn't good. And what, what do you think? He's saying that he's God. Why are you calling me good? Only God is good. There's no one good but God. So he's saying he's God, but the application for the rest of us, and none of you are good inherently. And specifically, he's addressing their, their comment about church leadership. There's nobody who's good but God. And this is the story of the Bible, you guys. All of our heroes of the faith were like, they make the Jerry Springer show, if you actually remember that show back then, uh, like look like, you know, leave it to Beaver or something. Like, have you read the book of Genesis lately? It's just dysfunctional person and family after dysfunctional person and family. It's crazy. I mean, Abraham, who's like supposed to be the father of our faith, was like the father of everything but faith. Like, he sold out his wife not once, but twice to the Egyptians because of fear, the opposite of faith. Moses murdered a guy over ethnic allegiances. You remember that? He took that Egyptian out because he was picking on his Hebrew homeboy. I, I mean, this is our, these are our fathers. Peter wasn't just a Christ denier. He tried to cut Malchus's face off, tried to bring the kingdom with a sword, right? And think of that, you know, th- that situation with Peter, that's one of those that we've, we're just so familiar with it in the church. Sometimes the gravity of what's, what's being communicated to us in the Bible can be lost on us. Peter verbally denied knowing Jesus three times. 
Imagine that at work or with a family member. Can you actually imagine being in a place of heart where you would say, I don't really believe in Jesus. I don't really know him. That's huge. And yet Jesus would allow him to become one of the primary leaders in establishing the church in the book of Acts in the first century. You could go on and on. John Mark was a coward. Remember, he abandoned uh, Paul on his missionary journey. You have uh, many other respected people in the Bible. You have the woman in the well at John chapter 4. She wasn't a great lady. She was like sleeping with everybody in town, and yet Jesus saved her, and he had grace and let her go directly from there to start a revival in her community. John chapter 8, you have a woman caught in adultery. Jesus, hey, I don't, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Repent of your sin. Go in grace. And this is the story of the Bible, you guys. There's no such thing as good men and women who just were so good that God used them. There's only people who were used by grace. And so this reality that we can be considered godly men and women by grace alone, that's hope for us. It's hope for us that David could be considered that. And because we all have indwelling sin that we're dealing with, don't we? That's what Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 5. Indwelling sin, and here's the truth, like when you believed in Jesus, it wasn't just like signing up for a new religion, was it? It wasn't signing up for a new religion. You met a person, you met God, and something real happened inside you. The Bible says you became a new creation. Spiritually, this transformation happened. You became a new person from the inside out. And if you're sitting in here today and you're like, that never happened to me, I haven't become a Christian yet, we have good news for you today. You can become a new person today. A new person through faith in Christ and accepting what he's done for you on the cross. But we become new people when you believe in Christ. But the the reality is, even though you're new and much starts to transform in your life from that day forward, you still have this thing, this insidious enemy with us all the time called indwelling sin, trying to tempt us, trying to drag us down, trying to get those shackles of sin that Jesus broke off of our hands and feet, and trying to get us to put those things back on, to pick them up and wear them again. And so we deal with sin. We deal with temptation, the indwelling temptation and indwelling sin that we all go through. And temptation's tough, isn't it? Is sin like, you know, when it comes knocking at the door of your heart, is it ever like, you know, if you have time and like you're not busy, you might kind of consider maybe sinning sometime today. It's not like that, is it? It comes with fierce intensity. It comes like a warrior battling against what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives, battling against what the new creation aspect wants to lead us in in our lives. You know, one of the, my favorite things to do with my little pink princess dress-wearing daughter, she's five, her name's Bennett, she's awesome. One of our favorite things to do is to watch um, mixed martial arts. Anybody else like that? Any other sinners here? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> we do. We like it. And one of, the, one of the best pieces of news I ever had was that the UFC was going to be shown on Fox from time to time for free, you know, so I didn't have to go spend, like, my life savings to try and watch a fight. So anyway, a few weeks ago, me and my daughter and my family were hanging out at home, and, and hey, UFC on Fox, it's on. And so we sat down, and we watched it. And she's like, she's a princess, but she'll, like, roundhouse kick you in the face from, like, the back of the sofa. She's, she's pretty amazing. So anyway, in this particular fight, it was cool because one of the fighters actually trains at 
Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, for some of his skills. Um, a lot of you probably don't know this, but one of our pastors there, Pastor Jacob Harmon, um, he trains with a lot of the UFC fighters in our Calvary Chapel High School uh, wrestling gym down there, and he helps them hone their grappling skills a little bit better. And so one of our guys was in the fight, and I'm watching it, you know, and of course I'm going for him, but I felt, I felt a little bad for, like, the other guy on the other side of the fight because he was trying. Like, he was trying so hard. He's putting up the best fight he can put up, but relentless strike after relentless strike and takedowns and everything else. Finally, at the end of the day, the guy has to tap out. And I remember as I'm sitting there thinking and watching this, I'm just thinking, you know, that's kind of how it is with me and sin sometimes. Like, it's not this casual battle that I deal with. It's a relentless brutal fight. And like after enough Indian burns and arm bars and everything, a lot of times sin just gets a full mount on me and drops an elbow and it pummels me and I give in and I tap out. And, you know, don't look at me like that. You're like, well, you're a pastor. You can't talk about how you sin like that. Like, like I know that you're all in the same boat with me because nothing has overtaken me or you except that which is common to man. This is what we're all going through. This is what we're all going through. And so again, what confidence do we have as men and women that we can be accepted by God eternally and forever? What inspiration do we have when we do fall and get tempted and deal with that stuff to stand up again and walk forward with Jesus Christ? What do we have? It all, again, comes back to the fact that God's grace is more freeing, far more freeing, and inspiring than most of us dare to believe, even in Christianity, even in our Christian circles. So the gospel takes care of our position. And again, there might be some of you guys that have never heard, never believed the gospel today. I hope that's true because I like people that don't know Jesus to meet Jesus. And uh, the gospel, just for you guys, what does it mean, church? Anybody? What's it mean? It means good news. Good news. It's good news. See, in the beginning, before there was ever a us, there was a God, a perfect God. And he created the heavens and earth. He created you, he created me, he created everything, and he did it perfectly. And he put certain parameters in our first human parents' lives that were intended to protect this relationship of peace and love and joy that they had with him and with one another. But the Bible tells us that our first human parents sinned. They broke those parameters. They went beyond those parameters. And when they did that, they invited sin and death and all the consequences and all the drama that all of us deal with every day into our world. And by one of the consequences that happened is we inherited their sin nature. And so we have this propensity toward sin. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't believe humans are sinful by nature. You probably don't have kids. You know, like, like there's a reason that for most of us, our first words that we learn are no and mine, right? And that's definitely true. I mean, I love my kids. They're like, in my eyes, they're perfect and they can do no wrong. But I'm sure if you went to a restaurant with us, you would think differently, you know, if, you know hearing them scream from across the room at times. But we have this propensity towards sin. And, and even beyond that, like we can't be too hard on our first human parents because we've all chose to rebel and sin against God in every way. And we do it every day, don't we? We break God's heart. We break his law in fantasy land, in our minds, in our desires, in asserting our will over his through which we, uh, we decide that we're going to be God and ruler of our life rather than him. We sin against God in our behavior. 
And because of that, we all deserve justice. That's reality. We know in our, in our society, if you break the law, you deserve the penalty of the law. And we've broken the law of a holy and just God. But the thing about our God is he's not just holy and just, he's gracious and loving. And because of that, our God came to earth as the man Jesus Christ and he lived a perfect life that we could never live on our behalf. Jesus never sinned at the level of thought, behavior, action, will, or anything else. And he did that so that through faith, his perfect life could be credited to us. And then Jesus died in our place for our sins. Is that still good news to you guys today? Jesus took the great cosmic bullet for us. He died for sins we committed. He took punishment we deserved. And better than that, he rose from the dead. And he conquered Satan. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered hell. He conquered shame. He conquered all of it for everyone who trusts in him. And that's his invitation. And if you've never believed in Christ today, he's talking to you. If you're trying to live life under the weight of your guilt and condemnation, you're living life as Jesus does not intend you to live it. He wants you to ask for his forgiveness based on what he has done for you. And when you do that, something that theologians call the great exchange happens, where all of your sin and your junk and your guilt gets transferred from your spiritual bank account to his. And the very righteousness of God is transferred from his spiritual bank account to yours. And the result is, for the rest of your days, on your best day and on your worst, darkest, ugliest day, when God looks at you, he doesn't see the sin and the shame and the guilt anymore as far as your position and relationship and acceptance with him goes. You know what he sees? He sees the perfect righteousness of God. That's what he sees. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on that cross so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Does that blow you guys away still? Just as much as the first day? I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror in the morning, but God says you should see the righteousness of God looking back at you if you've trusted in Christ. And so the gospel the grace of God, that's where our confidence comes from, that we can say, you know what? I'm still a total jerk sometimes. I still sin. I still fall big sometimes. But I know that my God will accept me because I'm getting paid for another man's work, and his name is Jesus Christ. So that's what gives us confidence. But what about inspiration to continue on? It's the same grace, What inspires us to not only say, cool, I'm secure with God forever, but what inspires me when I do fall and I am tempted to stand up again and stick it out with Jesus? It's the same grace, you guys. And we get a great picture of the relationship that God has purchased for us by his grace in Hebrews chapter 4. If you guys want to turn there, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. This is where we're going to be for this last little bit of our time today. We got to own verses like this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Personalize this. It says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we, the people at Reliance Church, 
do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then, since that's true, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Passages like that, you guys, are telling us why. Even when we fall, even when we continue to deal with the fire of temptation, we can stand up and stick it out with Jesus and continue on with him. I don't know where you have been lately. Some of you guys probably fell big last night. Some of us will fall big tonight. All of us will fall big in the future at one time or another. And these kinds of verses, these kinds of passages are the comfort that God offers to us. They're the inspiration that he brings to us, beckoning us, stand up, come along with me again. And so I want to give you guys, as we close here, four quick things that the gospel says we need to remember in temptation and failure. Four things the gospel says we should remember in temptation and failure. Number one, we need to remember that Jesus is always in our corner. Jesus is always in our corner. The first part of verse 14 again, he says, since then we what? What do we got? What's it say? We, anybody? There's my Baptists out there. We have, right? Not like we might have someday, we used to have, somebody else has. Like right now, the context is dealing with temptation and struggle. We have a great high priest, A high priest, one who's done everything sacrificially necessary for us to be accepted by God for the rest of our lives. We have a great high priest, and he's pretty tough too, if you didn't notice that, who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So not only did he like raise himself up from the dead of his own power, which is impressive, right? But he also just ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven in accordance with his own power. And he says, since we have him, we can do all of the rest of this. We can have this kind of confidence. So the gospel says when you struggle, when you're tempted, remember Jesus is in your corner. And that's important to remember because what does the enemy want to tell you when you struggle and fall? You know, I'm pretty sure that everybody hates you now. I think your wife, your kids, your family, your friends, they're probably done with you. In fact, you know, probably God himself is just getting a little bit sick of you. But God's grace comes in and he says, that's a lie. Those are lies. Right now, even now, you have a great high priest in heaven, on your side, cheering for you, empowering you, loving you, We have at least the relationship that Peter had to Jesus, if not a better one. You guys remember Jesus came to Peter and loose paraphrase. He's like, Peter, basically you're going to punk out. You're going to fall. But fear not, I have prayed for you. And so when you return, what you're going to do, because I'm praying for you, strengthen your brothers. The Bible tells us that not only did Jesus pray for Peter, that, but that he always, right now, in heaven, lives to make intercession for me and for you. 
And when I'm going through drama and sin and struggle, I want to know that people who love me and have an effective prayer life are praying for me. How great is it today, you guys, to know Jesus is praying for you? You think he's heard before the throne of heaven? Yeah, probably he sits on it. His prayers are effective. They're answered. Maybe you're in a place of absolute failure in your life right now, just like Peter, and you need to hear him saying to you, when you return, which you're going to do because I'm holding on to you and I'm praying for you, I've got a redemptive work ahead of you in your life. Turn away from the junk you're dealing with. Turn away from the sin. Turn away from the adultery. Turn away from the thievery. Turn away from the garbage and return to me because I have a restorative work to do in your life because I am your great and high priest today. The gospel says so. Number two, you guys, the gospel tells us to remember in the moment of temptation and failure that Jesus always calls us to hold fast our confession. Second part of verse 14, he says, Since all this is true, you have this great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold the line. Because of my own dealings with temptation and struggle and also situations I've encountered in pastoral counseling, I know that nothing gets people to the place where they just want to check out on Christ altogether and question whether or not he really has done anything in their lives quicker than habitual sin. People deal with habitual sin and struggles and they're just like, man, is, did, what did it like not take? What happened? Did I not like say the sinner's prayer right? Did I not know the secret handshake? Why am I not different? Why is this not changing? And, and what the gospel says is even in those times, Jesus doesn't just call you to hold fast your confession that you're still accepted by God because of what Jesus has done in spite of who you are. He gives you permission to hold fast your confession of the gospel and believe that that is true. Maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. You have permission to still claim and believe God's grace and love over your life. And we know, you guys, that the grace of God isn't permission to just keep on just being an idiot, right? I know I'm not supposed to say that in church. Sorry, it just slipped out. But we don't have permission. God doesn't give us freedom to sin. He gives us freedom from sin, right? That's what he gives us. And so we have that from the Lord. Hold fast. Jesus' performance is still all that you need to be accepted by God. Number three, you guys, the gospel reminds us in temptation and failure that Jesus is always our sympathizer. Read verse 15 with me again. Hebrews 4, 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And again, he's talking about temptation. He sympathizes. He says, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. That's one of those verses we just don't really believe, right? We just don't really believe that. When I, when I sin, my, my heart wants to, to tell me, the enemy wants to tell me, Jesus is so disappointed in you now. He's probably sitting up and hovering, wondering, are you just going to be a moron your whole life? Are you going to struggle with this your whole life? How can you keep falling to this stuff? What my Bible is telling me, and it's what yours is telling you too, is that Jesus isn't doing that at all. Instead, he's sympathizing you with you. 
the only one who could legitimately accuse you sympathizes with you. He doesn't justify the behavior, but he sympathizes with you. And he doesn't just do that because he's God and he's omniscient. And, and so, you know, of course he knows what you're going through. He, he does that because he has been tempted just like you, even though he overcame your temptations without sin. And again, look back at your Bible. I promise I'm not being a heretic. Some of you guys are like, this guy's a heretic. Send him back to Costa Mesa where he belongs. That's, he says he was tempted in how many ways? All ways. That's pretty all-inclusive. So categorically, Jesus was tempted with the same things all of us are. And I believe with the same intensity. And yet he overcame so his perfect human life could be credited to us by faith. That's Jesus. He's always our sympathizer. You guys, we have to remember, like, we have, again, like the prodigal son story is communicating the, the heart that the father always has for us. Always. You guys remember the prodigal son story that the son left the father's house, the religious guy stayed home who thought he was like super awesome because he always obeyed the rules and he looked down on everybody else and he was just as big of sinner as the guy that left the house because of all of his pride and garbage, right? But he stayed home and the younger brother goes off and he, you know, he moves to Hollywood and he spends all of his money on prostitutes and heroin and everything else and he has that Holy Spirit wake up moment one day. What am I doing? I have got to go home to my father. And he, co- he concocts this huge repentant speech about all how sorry he is and how he's never going to do it again. And he's going to be just like his religious older brother, you know, for the rest of his days. And he, he comes home and what does he find? He doesn't even get the words out of his mouth completely. And he finds a father with a heart of grace who's been standing there, staring, looking for him, waiting for him. And he shuts him up mid-confession and he hugs him. And he takes him to Fashion Island or whatever and, and like buys the coolest, nicest clothes and dresses him up and puts the ring on his hand and he invites all the neighbors over and he throws a party and he celebrates the fact that he gets to have grace on his son who has finally come home. That's Jesus every single time we fall and return. Every time. That's where you'll find him waiting if you have fallen and you need to return right now today. That's where many of sinners like me have found him when we have fallen and returned yesterday. And if for any that fall in the future, that's exactly what you're going to find in the heart of Jesus is one who sympathizes with you, who's waiting for you. This is also communicated in our fourth point here. The gospel reminds us, you guys, lastly, that Jesus always wants us to run to him and not from him when we're dealing with sin and temptation. Look at verse 16, another revolutionary one. Let us then, and just put your name in there. Let you, let us, let Kellen run with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Run to him. You know, no wonder the devil wants to do everything to tell us that we better run from God when we fall. Because he knows if we go to him, we're going to get grace. That's what, you know, God's on a throne, but it's a throne of grace and mercy for believers. 
And when I fall, when you fall, I'm sure it's the same thing. All I want to do is like reenact the garden and like make loincloths and hide in the bushes and like, you know, run away from God. And Satan's like, yeah, you better not read your Bible. If you do go to church, you better sit in loser row in the back, you know. No offense to the back people. I know you just had issues with kids getting here late. It's fine. I didn't mean it like that. So, but that's how we feel. That's what our hearts say. Like, you better read your, you, you, you shouldn't pray. You know, I think give it at least a week before you try to step back into God's presence because he's just not interested in hearing from a scumbag like you. And all along, Jesus is saying, tell him to shut up. Tell your heart to shut up and do what my word says. Run to me and you will find grace and mercy to help in your time of need. God is so different than us. God's grace is far more freeing and inspiring than usually any of us dare to believe. I agree with Jerry Bridges. He said, we as Christians need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, that we are sinners saved by grace, and we are never so good that we're not in utter need of the grace of God, but we are never so bad that the grace of God is not enough for me and you. So here's the conclusion, you guys. Jesus Christ is always the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you guys believe that? That's Bible theology right there. And that's true in regard to how he has grace over our lives on our best days and on our worst days. He has grace for us yesterday, he has grace for us today, and he has grace for us in the future. And so if you've been struggling with believing that God still accepts you because of your ongoing battles with temptation and failure, if you've trusted in Jesus, you're secure in him. He accepts you because you're still getting paid for another man's work, his work the work of his perfect life, the work of his cross, the work of his resurrection. And if you're struggling to find inspiration to stand up again today and stick it out with Jesus because you keep dealing with issues, look to his grace. Look to his grace. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this revolutionary thing that would help us out of a lot of our religiousness. He says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Notice that it didn't say like, you know, the sin-sniffing, you know, nitpicky, legalistic frame of mind that we constantly wield over one another leads us to repentance. The law doesn't do that. It incites sin. It exposes sin. It provokes sin. It shows us our guilt. It shows us how bad we'll always be, not how good we can be right? The kindness of God leads us to repentance. You guys, religious, legalistic churches and Christians don't produce holy Christians. Grace-focused, cross-focused, gospel-focused, Jesus-focused Christians and churches produce holy Christians. And the reason for that, it's like my friend... um, Ken Sutton always says this. He says, and it's true, it's Bible. Love is the hardest thing to sin against, right? Love is the hardest thing to sin against. I see this work out with my daughter and our kids all the time. They're rebelling 
a lot of times it's not dad bringing the hammer, it's dad just showing his sorrow over their sin and loving them anyway. And God does that for us every day. And the more we realize how steadfast God's grace is and his love is in our life, the more we're going to be inspired to like, man, I, I, I want to honor him. I'm going to put this down. I'm going to turn this relationship off. I'm going to turn away from this garbage because he keeps loving me day in and day out forever because the gospel is true, because the grace of God is real. And so where are you at today? Have you never received the grace of God through Christ? It's as simple as confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that you need Jesus to give you all the grace that I'm talking about. He will make you a new person from the inside out. He will transform and change your life gradually as you live in a relationship with him every single day. If you want to trust in him, do it. He's waiting. He's ready. He is. And for the rest of us who've been believers, hold fast. Hold fast. Be inspired by grace. Grace. 